All right, everyone. Good evening. We're going to begin. Um, it is a great honor and pleasure to welcome Mr. Jonathan Neumann to discuss a bit with us this evening. He is the author of "To Heal the World: The Heal the World: How the the Jewish Left Corrupts Judaism and Endangers Israel." That's a very benign title. Um, you could have been a little bit more bold, I think, with that one. Uh, Johnny has written and writes for various American, British, and Israeli publications. He was the Tikva Fellow at Commentary Magazine, an editor at Jewish Ideas Daily. But perhaps more importantly, and he'll forgive me, he's my friend. And I really do, I mean, he's one of my favorite people to talk to and think with. And so I'm really grateful for him to uh, take some time and, and be able to discuss what I believe is really important ideas tonight. Um, both having to do with his book and some of the things that come out or come up from the book. So, um, so tell me, uh, you know, first of all, why? Why did you write this book? Um, firstly, I'd, I'd like to echo those, uh, those thoughts. Firstly, thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you very much for having me and for, and for coming. And, and certainly, I, I entirely reciprocate those thank sentiments. You. Rabbi Dweck is, is uh, my teacher and my friend, and it's really a pleasure to be able to do something like this. Um, together, um, I say very briefly, and then perhaps after, if you like, we can sort of talk more about what the book is about. Yeah. Um, kind of why I wrote it. Um, I should also say you have carte blanche. Ah, brilliant. Okay. Thank you. Um, I should also say at the outset, I'll be a bit a, a, a bit vulgar, but I score um, points with my publisher for pointing out that I have copies of the book that are on sale. By all means. Uh, <laughs> at, at the end, there's some. There's plenty more, so don't be shy. Um, so I've ticked that box. That's good. Um, I think there's, there's kind of three reasons um, why I wrote the book, um, and it also feeds into kind of the, the, the kind of concluding points of, of the thesis. Um, the first one is in observing the Tikkun Olam phenomenon um, in the United States and American Jewry in particular. Um, I noticed this incredible distortion of Jewish sources. Um, that people would appeal to Judaism to support their um, political advocacy uh, of a certain sort, and they were relying on uh, particular texts, and that actually when you subject those texts to scrutiny, they do not um, support the interpretations that are ascribed to them. And uh, this obviously bothered me, because when Judaism is misrepresented, naturally, um, those, those of us to whom it is, it is precious and important, um, it, is, uh, it is aggravating. So that was one of the first triggers. Uh, the second point was that it was interesting to me that the denominations and movements in the United States that are most devoted to Tikkun Olam also have the biggest assimilation problem. And I was wondering whether there was a connection between those two things. So that was the second um, area of interest. And the third, and I think for me the most um, uh, grievous, was that I would see American Jews, a bit here, but again, the phenomenon, I th the, the, these phenomena I think are more uh, in American Jewry than here, um, and particularly amongst some of the young, you would see their campaigns against Israel and their growing hostility in certain pockets in the community towards Israel was justified with reference to Judaism and to Jewish sources. And I just found this just extraordinary. How on earth could you point to Judaism um, uh, to, to um, uh, not, not merely kind of criticize 
you know, Israeli policy and so on. That's a different issue, but fundamentally to question the purpose of a Jewish homeland and, and a Jewish state and a kind of uh, um, advocate for a diasporist Judaism, um, which is, again, growing in some radical pocket. So that's, that's kind of why I wrote the book. Um, I had to give a, a summary of the argument, if that's... I'd love that. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, I'm going to try to keep it, keep it brief, and, and, and obviously when we get into more conversation on this and any other issues, then we can explore some of these things more. So I think there's five points that I'd like to make in terms of the argument of the book. The first one is that tikkun olam, and we'll come to what that means in a moment, tikkun olam is hegemonic in American Judaism. And it's very important, I think, to emphasize this when speaking to a British audience because we, we hear tikkun olam bandied around occasionally in this community, but and we think that we sort of get a sense of what it's really about, but only really when you go to America, and I spent some time living there, and perhaps some people here are, are Americans or lived in, the, lived in America and have a sense of this. Um, certainly, obviously, Rabbi, Rabbi Dweck grew up, grew up and, and, and worked there for many years. Um, what we see here is a kind of pale shadow, an echo of what Tikkun Olam is in America. Tikkun Olam is everywhere in, in American Jewry. It has saturated the American Jewish community. And, and among Gentiles, interestingly. You know, they've adopted this idea. Exactly. Very interesting. That was actually the first time that I heard it. Right. Okay. I, had never, I had never known of this idea growing up, and all of a sudden, that was the first time. I was like, my goodness, I better look that up, because I never... Yeah. So not only is, yeah. is, is as Rabbi Jack says, that, that Tikkun Olam is the most recognizable concept in American Jewry and amongst American Jews, it's also American Jewry's most famous export yeah. to, to the non-Jewish community. President Obama talked about it a lot. Uh, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Governors, senators, congressmen, Supreme Court justices, professors like Cornell West, and a whole uh, and a whole lot of others, um, and you know that that's one illustration. But really, Tikkun Olam is with your average American Jew from cradle to grave. It's there um, in books for infants, in curricula, primary school, secondary school, in extracurricular activities for adolescents and teenagers, campus initiatives, programs for young professionals. The average Jew in the pew will hear it from uh, the pulpit. Uh, there are countless synagogue committees, uh, tikkun olam committees in synagogues and temples uh, in, in America, as the sort of progressive communities call them. They will read it in, in any number of articles, magazines, books, um, journals, um, the great American Jewish philanthropies, many of them are dedicated to Tikkun Olam as one of their main principles or values. Just to give an example, the federations uh, in America, which is the biggest uh, uh, kind of grant maker, the regional umbrella organizations across America distribute about $2 billion um, in, in uh, grants to welfare educational programs and others. One of their main principles is Tikkun Olam, the Jewish Funders Network, another billion dollars uh, also, Tikkun Olam, uh, again, no one will question the exceptional generosity of, of, of American, American Jewry, the non-profit industry there is $24 billion or something. It's extraordinary, but the interest is that Tikkun Olam is, is, is so high up on, on the list of priorities. So that's the first issue, that Tikkun Olam is hegemonic. The polls, by the way, also show this. You look at polls of American Jews, that they are animated by Tikkun Olam, and the great American Jewish denominations are devoted to Tikkun Olam. The Reform Movement, the largest denomination in America, totally de uh, devoted to Tikkun Olam. The Renewal and Reconstructionist Movements, both very small, are basically uh, synonymous with Tikkun Olam. Founded on this idea. And found, yeah, yeah, founded on the idea. And um, permeated conservative Judaism as well, even making inroads into orthodoxy. Um, so Tikkun Olam is hegemonic in American Judaism in a way that we just cannot understand 
looking at our own community. It's very, very different. That's the first point. The second point is what is tikkun olam? It okay. sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds excellent. It sounds, <laughs> sounds very positive. So what is tikkun olam? And in a word, in a phrase, we can explore this in, in more detail if you'd like, but tikkun olam is social justice. Usually when I speak to audiences, I open it up to, to, for their thoughts, but you know, we'll, we'll come to a more interactive part later. So I'm just going to lay it out. Tikkun olam is social justice. And it's not just me saying this. The leaders in the Tikkun olam movement say it as well. The Tikkun olam is the phrase used to describe the efforts of Jewish social justice movement, or the Jewish social justice organizations. It's not really something that's in dispute. What's interesting is Tikkun olam and social justice have an opinion on every issue in American political discourse. You name it, healthcare, immigration, taxes, labor, the environment, foreign policy, guns, incarceration, education, there's no limit. And on all of those issues, Tikkun Olam slash social justice have an opinion. Just to give you some examples, this is a book called Righteous Indignation, a Jewish Call for Justice, published in 2008. It's an anthology of, of short essays by leaders in the Tikkun Olam movement. And I just, I enjoy doing this. I like to read out some of the titles here because it gives you a sense of the range of issues that, um, that they deal with. So to give you an example, religious leadership and politics. Rereading Genesis, Human Stewardship of the Earth. Jewish Textual Practice and Sustainable Culture. Wander and Restraint, a Rabbinical Call to Environmental Action. Toxic Waste and the Talmud. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's always a favorite. Toxic Waste and the Talmud. Judaism, Oil and Renewable Energy. Redemption for Radicals, Jewish Congregation-Based Community Organizing. Um, the, the Brownsville Legacy, Judaism and Reproductive Rights. A Jewish Vision for Economic Justice. Why a Labor Movement Matters. And if not together, how? Jews and immigration in the United States. Gracious giver of wisdom, recovering America's great public school system. Uh, am I my brother's keeper if my brother lives halfway around the world? A Jewish response to globalization. Silence is akin to assent. Judaism and the war in Iraq, and so on. So you, you, you get a sense of the, uh, the, the scale of what we're talking about, really across the whole range of issues. You also get a sense from there what the political stance that is being taken is. So our second point is the Kunalam is social justice. Our third point is what is social justice? As I said, you'll probably get a sense just from that that social justice, in a nutshell, is left-wing politics. Now, I'm going to make this very clear. This is not, at least not at this stage, we're not having a political discussion. You know, thank God we live in a democracy in this country and American Jews and Americans live in a democracy in America. Everyone can have whatever views they like. Some of the people in this room will be on the right, on the left. Some of us will have some views that are on the right and some views that are on the left, etc. And everyone is welcome to their views. And thank God, you know, we live in, 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 in societies that we can have, you know, those discussions openly. Um, we're just dealing now with nomenclature, with defining our terms. And this is what social justice is in reality, whatever we might want it to mean. What it does mean in reality is left-wing politics. Think of the politicians who use the phrase and those who don't. Think of the policies that you have in mind when you hear the term social justice or tikkun olam and think of those um, that you don't have in mind. Another very important caveat on this point that social justice is left-wing politics. And for my part, you know, Rabbi Dweck will say things that are of much greater significance and profundity than I will. But <laughs> for my part, anything that you're going to take away from what I say, it should be this. Social justice is a political program. It is a political enterprise and it is distinct from charity. Charity is something else. Often charity, um, kind of uh, grassroots volunteerism, things that people might call social action sometimes or direct service, 
These are sometimes subsumed under the rubric of social justice, but they are distinct. Social justice is a political program, and this is not just me saying this. This is, uh, again, leaders in the social justice movement say it as well. I, I, I recently did, um, a few months ago, a debate in L.A. in David Wolpe's shul. David Wolpe is a leading conservative rabbi in America, and he was moderating... Conservative. A conservative rabbi. Jewish. Yes, not politically conservative. Yeah. Um, he was moderating a debate between me and Sharon Brass, who is a progressive uh, rabbi of a non-affiliated synagogue called Ikar, a very hip and popular uh, synagogue. She was on the cover of Newsweek. I think she did one of the inaugural prayers at one of the Democratic conventions. Um, so a very um, kind of prominent figure. And she phrased it in, in, in these terms with this analogy, with which I completely agree and agreed on, on the panel. She said, imagine you're walking along a stream and you see a baby in, in the river. And you say, oh my God, there's a baby in the river. The baby's drowning. You jump into the river and you save the baby. You think, okay, that was, you know, save the baby. What on earth was that? But okay, you carry on walking and you see another baby in the river. And you say, there's another baby in the river. Jump in and you save this baby. And you keep walking and there's another baby and another baby and another baby. And you keep jumping in and saving them. That's charity. That's the, that kind of grassroots specific work with a specific purpose where you can provide very obvious relief. Now, then you start to think, why are all these babies in the river? Where are they coming from? Why do they keep ending up in the river? And you look up and you notice that they're, being, they're either falling off or being thrown off the cliff. So you say to yourself, okay, well, I can either stay down here and carry on saving the babies one by one, or I can climb the cliff and try to find out what on earth is going on up there and try to deal with it and stop the babies falling in. Problem is, you're only one person. You can't be in two places at once, so you have to make a choice. Going up the cliff and trying to work out what system of throwing the babies in, in, the, in the river is prevailing, that is then a political question. Because then you have to change the system or the structure of the environment that you're in, or to, to extend the analogy to, to, to where we are, to, to make political uh, changes such that instead of um, uh, sheltering the homeless, you try to advocate for an end to homelessness. You, do, you engage in political advocacy to end that. So that's the distinction, and that's, that was her words, and I completely agree with that. And the point is that um, sometimes, as they themselves say, charitable work can even distract us from the, what they call the redemptive work of uh, social justice, that political uh, endeavor. So that's incredibly important. And what I will also say on this point is that Nobody should go away with any misunderstanding. Judaism and the halakha absolutely obligates Jews to uh, shelter the Jewish and Gentile homeless, to clothe the Jewish and Gentile naked, to feed the Jewish and Gentile poor. There's no, there's no question about that, and it's very important that nobody goes away with, with the wrong impression. The question comes, does Judaism have a view on how to prevent those things arising? Does it believe that it's possible to prevent those things arising? Does it have particular policy prescriptions for the contemporary United States or the contemporary UK? Those are very different, those are very different questions. So that's our third thing. Social justice is left-wing politics and it's not charity. And the final two things, I'll, I'll try to speak a bit more quickly on that. Tikkun Olam is not merely social justice, it's Jewish social justice. So what is Jewish social justice? Jewish social justice is exactly the same as regular social justice, except what makes Jewish social justice Jewish 
is the contention that the left-wing and sometimes radical politics of social justice are endorsed by and even mandated by Judaism. That if you open the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, or the Talmud, or you look in the Midrashim, or the, Rabbin, or the Halachic Codes, or Rabbinic Responsa, you will find justification, and indeed obligation even, to engage in uh, social justice work. And the sorts of sources that they point to, again, we can discuss in more detail, the creation of the world, the creation of human beings in the image of God, uh, Joseph's economic policies in Egypt, the exodus from Egypt, uh, the books of the prophets, very prominent, the appearances of Tikkun Olam in the rabbinic corpus, and a few other uh, verses, Abraham as well. And I deal with them chapter by chapter, saying, well, this is what the Tikkun Olam movement says about these sources, this is, and this is what the sources actually say, this is what the traditional view of these sources has been, and there really is almost no basis for the interpretations they bring. In some cases, the obvious interpretation, if any, if there's any political lesson, is the opposite of what they suggest. <clears throat> so that is what Jewish social justice is. And finally, the final question, and this is the conclusion that we sort of started at, is, so what? So Tikkun Olam is hegemonic in American Judaism, so what's the big deal? My argument is that it is bad for three reasons. And they're the three reasons that we suggested at the beginning. The first is that this is not Judaism. So anyone who likes the idea of Jews doing Judaism, and more Jews doing more Judaism, and at whatever level is appropriate to them, to see people doing something that they think is Judaism, but is not in fact Judaism, and indeed misrepresenting it to the Gentile world, that is um, distressing. And that is something that, that um, you know, I think needs correction. So that's the first issue, to disabuse people of the notion that this is Judaism. The second problem, and this is connected to the assimilation point, is that Tikkun Olam, and, and I'm sure we'll, we'll come to this, is stridently universalistic. <laughs> um, social justice doesn't see, you know, social justice believes that every human being should relate to every other human being in exactly the same way. And this is a problem for Judaism because Judaism believes that the Jewish people is distinct. It's not to say superior, but it's distinct from the rest of the world. We are a, 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 an elected people, people chosen by God to be separate from the rest of the world. That's why we have the rituals and so on that we do to keep us separate. And there are moral obligations, uh, halakhic obligations that flow from that that are different. So these things are not obviously compatible. Strident universalism and Judaism, in my view, is not, are not compatible. And the problem is then that if you go down the route of social justice and that strident universalism, there is no real need for a Jewish people. Social justice in Tikkun Olam, ultimately, if you read the literature and you go into it in depth and take it to its theological conclusions, has no answer to the question, why be Jewish? In a repaired world, in a world of social justice, there is no obvious need for a Jewish people. And the third point, which follows on from that, if there's no need for a Jewish people, there's no need for a Jewish homeland. Mm -hmm. And then that leads to the theological justification for this hostility toward Israel. Uh, that we see in that movement. So, just to recap very briefly the five points that we made, Tikkun Olam is hegemonic in American Judaism. Tikkun Olam means social justice. Social justice is left-wing politics and not charity. Tikkun Olam is Jewish social justice, that is, the politics of social justice are led, purportedly justified by Judaism. And finally, Tikkun Olam is bad for the Jews for the three reasons that we've said. Thank you. That's the thesis. Yeah, thank you. I have to say, I... I um First of all, thank you for, for, for putting out the points so succinctly and clearly. I, I mean, I really believe that we could spend an hour at least on every single one of those points. I'm going to jump to number three. I'm going to jump to number three. 
And this idea that, you know, we, it's put out as being, uh, that's number three, right? That it's put out as being specifically Jewish. Yeah? Number four. Yeah. Number four. <laughs> number three is? Number three was? It's left-wing politics. Right. So number four. I want to deal with number four, not number three. This is, this is one of the things that I'm, I'm concerned about, and I'm not only concerned about it in terms of you know, how, how uh, tikkun olam is happening or being discussed in, in the United States and indeed essentially in the world. It's really coming out all over the place. It's, you know, the, 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 so much of your book deals with the question of how it is that, as Johnny was saying, you know, how it is that these elements of the Bible are used. You know, the story of Abraham he speaks about in the book. You know, the, this, this uh, argument when it comes to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so here Abraham, the freedom fighter, is standing up to God and saying, how could you do such a thing? You know, where's the social justice in this? The human rights of the people. And that's really how it is that it's put out. And, and Johnny, you know, very clearly and, and um, um, uh, with, with scrutiny of the text, points out that neither of these things are happening. It's not really about human rights. I mean, Abraham is prepared for the people that are guilty to die without a problem. And he is not this, you know, speaking truth to power freedom fighter. He's really in the, some of the most humble and self-effacing dialogue of the, of the entire Bible is speaking to God, trying to understand him, right? trying to, to understand what, are the, what is the nature of divine, of divine judgment and justice. The thing about that is, that it is perhaps one of the most frustrating things any one of us experience. And that is when your words are taken out of context. I mean, it's terribly frustrating because, you know, you know that you've said something. You, can, you can't deny that you've said what it is that you've said. And yet, you know that you haven't said it because the problem is not in the specific words of what it is that was, that was spoken but the context that is, being, that is being presented in. And that's a fascinating magic trick. Because what you do is you pull out data from an inherent context, and you then can impose an external context, a foreign context, an alternative context on it, completely redefine it simply by that. You don't necessarily have to doctor the words at all. And it is genuinely something else. Uh, and you, well, what do you do? in such a situation. I mean, you write a book, but the, the, you know, that, that is extremely difficult to address because the, the natural response is, you know, this is, did you not say this? Is it not what's written? I mean, do you not recognize that these are the words and this is what's being presented? And the answer to that very often has to be yes, but, and it's the but where people stop listening. Um, and so I'm interested in, in, in what it is that you think about that, because I know that there are other aspects. I mean, you genuinely go in and say, listen, it's not even in the text, you know, what it is that you're saying. But there is a more subtle element over here, because they are usurping the Jewish idea. In other words, they're coming in and they're saying, this is Judaism. And the way that I see it, and this is not only happening in politics, the way that I see it is, well, there is a Jewish context, and there is an American context, and there's a British context, and there's a political context. And it is possible to take Jewish ideas and insert them into American politics. But that's not necessarily Judaism. Those are ideas that are borrowed. It's possible to do the alternative as well. You can take ideas from American politics and insert them in Judaism and pass them off as Jewish ideas. Right? Both of which I think are a little, di a little bit uh, you know, dishonest or a bit careless. Well, 
you know, I, I wonder what your thoughts are about that. No, I, I, I completely agree. And having looked at, at, at these sources, as you said, you know, that there, there is, um, their readings are misreadings, deliberate misreadings, distortions, um, selective, uh, uh, selective readings and quotations. Um, in some cases, they even make sources up. Uh, which I talk about in the book. There is one charitable foundation, for example, and actually I think it's uh, often more out of ignorance than than than, um, than in other cases. Some of the leaders are not ignorant; they they can be very learned and they know exactly what they're doing. But others are less so. You know, there's one one example that I give in the book. Um, uh, one of the websites in its says that you know list its values. Tikkun Olam is one of its values. What's the source? Why is Tikkun Olam one of your values? And they quote the Mishnah: Lo alecham lachalik mo. It's not for you to complete the task. You know, the mission goes on to say, but neither are you free to desist from it. That, you know, there are things that, that there are things that we have to do in our lives uh, and in our communities that, you know, may seem may seem beyond us. But just, you know, just because you won't complete it yourself uh, or your generation won't complete it or what have you um, still you, you have to make your your contribution and so on. And um, and they quote this and they put um, it is in, in the English. It is not for you to finish the task. And in the brackets. <laughs> okay. I mean, the very fact that you have to put it in brackets doesn't that immediately suggest to you that was not actually in the original in the original text. Um, so, so obviously, that you know, sometimes it's just it's just amusing and kind of the the the, the contradictions as well in, in in the way that they read sources is um, is also amusing. But fundamentally, what I what I find most kind of aggravating and 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 surprisingly is even admitted by by some of them is the tendentiousness of the entire enterprise. Mm -hmm. They know exactly where they want to finish. Mm. They, they know exactly what they want the sources to say. And whatever the sources in fact say, they are going to say whatever it is that they want them to say. Mm. Um, and um, the alternative is they don't even care what the sources say. So to give you another example, Margie Klein, who's one of the um, editors of, of this and a Tikkun Olam activist, she wrote in a review of um, a Jewish social justice book written by Shmuley Yanklowitz, who is a, an Orthodox rabbi, open Orthodox rabbi, very big into social justice and written a number of books on it. And she's reviewing one of his books and she says, you know, there's a whole number of great sources in here. And um, she says, I really enjoyed one of the sources where he, he, talk, he, he shows that the Talmudic rabbis were discussing health care. And she says, I was really pleased to see that the rabbis of the Talmud engaged with this issue, engaged with health care. But I was very clear to myself that kind of regardless of what their thoughts would have been or are, I was still firm in my views. I was like, what, what is the whole point of this then? As in, why do you feel the need to drag Judaism into it? No one is stopping you from having your views. They have their views. I have my views. Maybe there's overlap. Maybe there's not overlap. But, but why feel the need to drag Judaism into it? And, you know, as I, as, as I say in the book as well, you know, there, there comes a point where you, you said it's become controversial, you know, to suggest that maybe the God of Israel doesn't necessarily have a view on the marginal federal tax rate in the contemporary 21st century <laughs> United States. As in, why has it become controversial to say that? Um, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Um, you know, it's something that we can look at. But the notion that kind of, well, you know, Judaism must have an opinion on absolutely everything under the sun where, where, where we are. Um, in the, particularly when you're talking about the diaspora, um, you know, I think is I think is outlandish. So in terms of what to do about it, mm -hmm. as you said, you know, you just have to scrutinize it when you can. But it's incredibly mm -hmm. frustrating. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you. I mean, this is, as a rabbi, this is this is something that very much concerns me, because uh, I, you know, I did a case study a little while ago about people's experience in synagogue, 
and what people expect. One of the questions that I looked at was what people expect to hear from the sermon, the rabbi's sermon. And, and I asked, are you interested in hearing about current events in the rabbi's sermon? And I do have to say that and it was a fairly good cross-section of people that are more engaged and less engaged. I have to say that I was pleased to hear that the majority of people were not necessarily primarily interested in the rabbi addressing current events at the sermon. That'll depend on the congregation. But, you know, one of my pet peeves is and has always been where a person is planning a sermon and they look at the parasha of the week and think, how can I make this work with current events? Because by definition, what it is that you're doing is not learning from the parasha and trying to share a lesson learned from the parasha, but rather trying to mold the parasha to what it is that you want to say. And I actually had a conversation with a rabbi about this, and a rabbi said, well, that's what I do. I said, but, but don't you see that that's... Yeah, he goes, but it's creative. Um, and I guess if you're honest about it and you're saying, you know, listen, I'm doing some artwork over here and I'm being creative, well, then I mean, it's a disclaimer. But, but it goes back to a deeper problem, I think. And again, I'm speaking from a rabbinic perspective. It goes back to a deeper problem because if the problem genuinely is contextual realities, right, what is the context within which this was put out. I mean, you know, the line that you quoted before, it's not yours to, to finish and yet can be... That's speaking about a very specific issue in Perkei Avot, mainly about the study of Torah. That you're not, you know, don't expect to finish the entire thing, and, uh, but that doesn't mean that you can't just keep from doing it. Well, it's not talking about Tikkun Olam, that's for sure. But, but if we are going to address the contextual issue, which I fervently believe is the most important thing to teach, are the principles and the ideas and the frameworks, then, you know, the parashat HaShavua is the best possible thing to have. Because we genuinely go through the entire context in a year. We read through the entirety in one year. And that's a wonderful opportunity to be able to take the principles that come, that the Torah presents, and to teach the principles. So you give a lens to people, rather than giving details and information to people, you teach people how to think rather than what to think. And that's very, it's not easy, but ultimately it is, you know, important to focus on. And that's, this is something that I would say as a rabbi, to other rabbis, to Jewish people in general, if we're interested at all in Jewish education, is, you know, that we, we, presented, we presented tonight's discussion as Judaism in the modern world. You know, is Judaism compatible with the modern world? Does it speak to the modern world? How does it respond to the modern The only way to know that is to be able to know what Judaism is. And the only way to know what Judaism is to study it. There are no other shortcuts, right? So, um, uh, yeah, as you say, how do you fix this? I'm not sure how to fix this, but, uh, but there's one line from Maimonides. You didn't think I was going to get through this without the Rambam. <laughs> there's one line from Maimonides that, I, you know, that, is, that is, is a guiding light for me that he writes at the end of his, in the commentary of the Mishnah, at the end of the Tractate of Berachot. And he says, Yakar be'enai, it is more precious in my eyes, lelamed yesod miyesodehada, to teach you a principle from the principles of our faith, mikol davar she'alamed, from anything else that I will ever teach you. And he taught us everything, the Rambam, right? Um, so, so that's something that, that you know, I, I, I certainly struggle with. And I wonder from your perspective, how, how, I don't know, I hope this is a fair question, but, you know, how, how do you address you know, how do you address that when you see it happening in front of you? Do, do you speak about, you know, the contextual elements of it or the educational elements of it? 
Um, yeah, I think the, the politics from the pulpit is, is, is an incredibly interesting point. It speaks directly to, mm. to, to this issue because certainly, again, th this, is, this, is, this is less a phenomenon that's purely American. This mm. is something that you, you really do see in America, but you get also, you get also here. Um, I don't, you know, full disclosure, I don't spend a vast amount of time in, in non-Orthodox synagogues. Um, but I, you know, do understand that this is something that does, you know, that does occur there uh, in, in this country. You know what I'm saying, um, as well. Um, from obviously, I can't speak to the rabbinical point point of view. Um, there is obviously the challenge of making something relevant to one's community, and mm. and obviously needing to go to the community where they are. Mm. And if you know, if one is in a community where the only way for people to see the relevance of, of, of the Torah is, is through politics, um, then, then obviously the rabbi has, a, has um, a difficult, I think, decision to make about how, um, uh, how, how, how and whether to bring that in um, and how much to indulge that. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, there is the huge risk, not only that it, it um, as you mentioned, is potentially corrupting, mm. you know, what is creative on the one hand can be corrupting mm. on, on, on the other, but it is also um, potentially divisive, and this is, I think, probably what any, 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 anyone here like me who's kind of a layperson sitting and, and, and hearing politics from the pulpit, um, you know, sometimes you'll sit there beaming and saying, yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely right, you know, keep going, Rabbi, or so on. Other times you're just like, what am I doing here? <laughs> uh, what, what is this? And, you know, you see in, in, in the United States that, that, you know, synagogues have become rallies for, for uh, progressive politics and for the Democratic Party. And, you know, some, you know, as it happens, a lot of people in the audience will like that. But that, that becoming the totality of their Judaism is, is I think, very depressing. Um, and it has become the totality. And... You see it with their festivals as well. Everything gets reinterpreted. Hmm. Um, one that I particularly that I particularly dislike because I think it's almost an, it, it's an insult to themselves as well as to everybody else. You get you know Yomim Lorayim Rosh Hashanah and you see the kind of people writing articles and so on of judgment. It's a season of judgment, so let's be judgmental. And 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 in their pulpit sermons as well, they speak about the um, the people on the right who voted for Trump or voted for Brexit or the refugees and the this and that. And again, you have. Everyone have their own opinions on these things, but and climate change and so on, and just kind of giving this list of sins, purported sins that other people have committed. Right? It's it's not us. It's not the people in this room. We're all fine. It's it's those people out there who are ruining our country or ruining the Western world or what have you. And actually, you you not, it'd almost be better if you just spoke about something completely different because you you totally inverted what this is about. If you want to be judgmental and speak about judgment and give tochacha from the pulpit, give admonition from the pulpit, which I generally think is 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 welcome, and I think Rabbi should feel comfortable enough to do that. But it you know varies from shul to shul. Um, but to do it about everybody who's not in this room, well, what is the point of that? If anything, it's, it's even worse. It can be, you know, it's potentially slanderous. It just, it just aggravates the, some of the very qualities that one is trying to exercise from oneself, I think, at that time of year. Um, but you get other things that Hanukkah is actually about sustainability or whatever. And Purim is about diversity or feminism or what have you. And, and Shavuot is about lobbying your congressman to pass an education act. I, I mean, it's just... And again, I, I, I thought that's what it was about. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it's, it's very important that people you know, distinguish and are able to distinguish 
the, those policies and those ideologies, and there'll be, again, there'll be people who agree with them in themselves, but the question is their attachment to Judaism and reducing our festivals. I mean, Pesach, the Haggadot that, that this movement produces, that basically have nothing to do with the actual exodus and the, and the Jewish story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, of leaving Mitzrayim, and, and everything to do with the current political uh, issues of, of the day. It, it is completely missing what, what Judaism is about. Um, <coughs> And it is divisive. Actually, David Wolpe, the conspicuous conservative rabbi we mentioned earlier, actually apparently introduced a policy a few months ago, no more politics from the pulpit. He has a very interesting synagogue, as it happens, because he's, um, it's half Persian and half Ashkenazi. And the, with exceptions notwithstanding, the Persians tend to be more traditionalist and more conservative, and the Ashkenazim tend to be more liberal and, and more politically liberal and more religiously liberal. And basically says, every, anything that I say is going gonna, is gonna to alienate half of my community. So what, what's, what's, the, you know, what's the point? Mm. And I've spoken to people, both in this country, but particularly in the United States as well, who grew up in these sorts of synagogues and, and, and just and left. Mm. They said, why do I need to go to a political rally on a Shabbat morning? And actually the most gratifying responses I get from young people when I, when I speak about the book, people who come from progressive synagogues and, um, and they say to me, Thank you so much for, for writing this, for giving us a voice, for saying something that we've always felt. I've, I've either stopped going to shul or I, or I go and sit at the back and hold my tongue or I just you know, sit and count the minutes until I can leave. You know, I just feel a responsibility to go. And what I say to people is that you know, these denominations, leaving aside the theological differences between orthodoxy and non-orthodoxy and so on, just in themselves, these denominations are failing their Jews. They're not. They're failing their congregants. They're not teaching them anything about, about actual Judaism. It's just, yeah. it's just become politics. It's tragic. I, um, a, basic, a basic point that I wanted to hear, from, I, I wanted to ask you about, because, you know, like I said, I, I had never heard this term before, tikkun olam, when I was a kid. You know, growing up as a Jewish person in an Orthodox circle, I just, I had never, and the first time that I heard it was really external. I mean, the only tikkun, and I thought about it, you know, the only, I mean, then, the only tikkun olam that I know is in the Aleinu. Aleinu Shabbat. We say, taken olam malchut shadai. Um, which is just about God's presence on earth and, and all that. Where, where are they pulling this? Where, is, where are they pulling the idea from? What, what, what are the, the sources? I mean, there's got to be something there that they're, coming, they're, they're, they're pulling out. Right. Because, I mean, you, know, you, you, you think about rabbinic literature, and it's certainly not prominent in any way. It's not right. a term that's used. Um, so, to call along the phrase kind of literally means repair the world or maybe even perfect the world or more poetically to, you know, heal the world. You know, so... The first thing to say is that it doesn't appear anywhere in Tanakh, anywhere. Mm. And, you know, every other idea in Judaism of significance is in, yeah. is, in, is in the Tanakh somewhere. Usually in the Torah, but certainly in the Tanakh somewhere. And, you know, there may not be all the precise specifics of exactly how it's to be observed. That comes down through, through, through the, the Torah Shabbat Peh, through the old tradition and the rabbinic response and so on. But there is uh, an explicit reference from uh, the, the chosenness of the Jewish people, mm. the land of Israel, the giving of the Torah at Sinai, the creation of the world, Mashiach, Shabbat, Kashrut, Tfilin, Tzitzit, all of these things are in there somewhere. Yes, you don't have the specifics, but Shabbat is mentioned. And it's not some random thing that we have no idea what it is. It's mentioned time after time, what it is, why we do it. Tikkun Olam doesn't come, it is not featured anywhere in, in the Tanakh at all, which is extraordinary given how much it's taken over so much of Judaism to think that it's not even there at all. 
So that's, that's I think, the first thing. Um, then there are two parts of this. There's, there's the traditional sources that they, that they point to where this phrase comes up, and then there's kind of historically how it, um, how it came about. So very briefly, there are four kind of categories of sources where it comes up. The first is Aleno, mm-hmm. as, as you said. Um, the second is the Talmud, um, and more really the Mishnah in Gittin, predominantly where, um, and, and mostly in one chapter in Gittin, where this, this phrase, Mipnei Tikkun HaOlam, for the sake of tikkun haolam, whatever that is, um, the rabbis introduce a number of takanot, and uh, they make tweaks to the to, to existing laws to make them function a bit better. To give most of them deal with divorce law, but not all. And to give you a kind of famous example, um, it used to be that if a man wanted to divorce his wife who was living somewhere else, he could write a writ of divorce, a get, and give it to a shaliach, an emissary, to take to the wife. And if he changed his mind. Well, once the emissary had already gone, then the writ would become invalid. But the emissary wouldn't know, and the wife wouldn't know when she received it, and she could then think that she's divorced, go on to, ha- go on to get married again, have children who would you know, be potentially mamzerim and have a stigma and so on. Really a, 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 a scenario to avoid at all costs. It's, it's not good for anyone. It's not fair on the wife. It's not, obviously, certainly not fair on the children and so on. So, mipinei tikkun haolam, for the sake of tikkun haolam, the rabbis introduced... Um, uh, prohibited this practice. That essentially, once the emissary goes, that's it. You can't then you can't then change your mind and and, and that the get gets um, uh, nullified on the way without anyone knowing. So, what's amazing actually about about this formula is that it has enormous potential. There's a not an enormous potential for what you can do with this. And what's amazing is actually how little it's used, both in the Talmud and then through the rabbinic response over 2,000 years, how little it's used. Mm. So that in itself is interesting. It comes up in a few places to Kunolam in the Midrash as well, um, usually in, in, with all kind of mystical connotations. And uh, finally in the Kabbalah, and, and in particular the, the Kabbalah of the Arizal, of, of Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, about 400 years ago, and um, the, the, the Tikkunim, the... the, the um, maybe familiar that, 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 uh, that God, when he creates the world, tries to put elements of himself into the world in, in vessels, and the vessels shatter because they cannot hold the divinity. And we do tikkun essentially by finding um, the sparks of divinity in the world and, and reuniting them with God. Again, very in, 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 a, in a nutshell, and you know, um, but that's again a not a material. Um, uh, or kind of tangible um, exercise at all. This is something that you do through tefillot and mitzvot with, with the right kavanah. Um, this is not you know, going out and campaigning to save the, you know, to save the whales. That's a, that's a very different... Um, it's not really what, what um, the Arizal had in mind. So those are the four kind of historical sources. Again, once, uh, I look at them in detail. None of them, again, provide a basis for this sort of activism. Historically... Um, Tikkun Olam really became uh, big in the United States in the 80s and 90s when it was popularized by, by Jewish radicals. Um, I say Jewish radicals, they were radicals who happened to be Jews. But a lot of them, the, their Judaism was not part of their um, radicalism, particularly in kind of the 60s and 70s. They were anti-Vietnam, pro, not just pro-civil rights, but pro-kind of militant civil rights, Black Panthers and so on, um, and anti nuclear weapons and, and the like. And then they kind of came to Judaism, and the Judaism they came to was this kind of Torah of social justice, as I call it. This was the, mm-hmm. the Judaism that had developed in Reform um, Judaism for some time before. And that's what they... They, they then used Judaism to kind of express their, 
expressed their politics and Tikkun became bigger. The earliest use that I can see in, in, in that vein is Mordechai Kaplan in, I think, 1937, who grew up in, in the era of the social gospel, which is a, a liberal Christian movement in the United States that politic, heavily politicized Christianity. I talk about it more, more in depth, but um, he wanted, essentially, they had, um, they, they wanted to bring about social justice in the world. They were post, they, they believed in, in a Christian <coughs> theology called post-millennialism, which means that um, Yeshu could only return um, uh, to the world after a thousand years of social justice. Usually people assume it's before, that, that his second coming will initiate an era of social justice. They believe the opposite. It, was, it had to be, humanity had to achieve that, and then, and then he would come. And they pointed, you know, one of the sources they pointed to that captured what they were talking about was what they called the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, so this idea of... Uh, of the king, kingship of the Almighty, the kingdom of the Almighty, and, and creating that on earth was a very big deal for them. And the Jews, who got very excited about this and started to get very involved in it and even surpassed the Christians in their zeal for it, uh, for this kind of social justice work, they didn't really have a Hebrew phrase for it. And Mordechai Kaplan, uh, who uh, founded Reconstructionist Judaism, um, alighted on Aleinu, which of course led to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And I don't think it's a coincidence at all that, of course, this phrase is so uh, similar to the ones that the Christians were mm -hmm. espousing. Um, so that, I think, is where it originally came from. Um, it, um, but then it doesn't really take off until the, until the ages, as I said. One last point, if you'll mm -hmm. indulge me, because Please. it's a Sephardi audience. Absolutely. Um, so what's interesting that, you know, we assume that Aleno says, Le Taken Olam, um, with... Uh, um, uh, kuf. Taf, Kuf, Nun, yeah, uh, is, is, is the verb. And there is a strong argument, I think a compelling one, that actually the original, um, that's a corruption, and the original is with a kaf instead of a kuf. So you can see why, why it would be changed. Why do I think that? There's a few reasons. One is that actually if you look at establishing kingdoms, whether it's of David or Solomon or God, um, in Tanakh, whether it's in Book of Shmuel, in Tehillim, even in our liturgy, mm -hmm. it's always letachen, not letachen. Uh, and letachen meaning to, to establish, yeah, essentially, to establish the kingdom of God rather than to perfect the, you know, the, the world under the kingdom of God. Um, that's the first. The, the second, and this is why I, I, I mention it in a, in a, in a Svaradi synagogue, is because um, medieval Svaradi Sidorim have that in it. And actually, um, uh, Temani, Yemenite, Sidurim to this day still have letachen in them. So if you open it up, you'll see letachen olam shakai in there. And and the third thing, the third reason is that it makes much more sense because yeah, kingdoms absolutely. are established, not perfected. What does that mean? That that word is used throughout the Tanakh when it when it relates to the establishment of government. We say it in the Tefillah also every day. The tikkun betoch Yerushalayim yircha, tishkon betoch Yerushalayim yircha. The tikkun is not a tikkun of a of a kuf. But essentially, the kaf. So we will always say, Kodesh. May the, the holy city be built and established. And uh, it's always it's used throughout. Tikon malchuto his his throne, his seat, his monarchy should should be established. Always used in the same vein. So that's very interesting. It's very interesting. What I like, by the way, just on on, mm -hmm. on Aleinu is that is that you know you'll know that the first paragraph is quite particularistic. The second is universalistic, mm -hmm. but um, says that we we appeal to God to. Um, to uh, 
to establish his kingship such that the entire world only recognizes God. On that day, his name mm. shall be, he will be one, his name shall be one. Um, and some of these progressive um, communities and, and some in this movement feel it's too chauvinistic. Right. You know, and, and to the point that some of them don't even say it anymore in their synagogues. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, and that, that's fine, they can do what they want. But what's funny is that this is the original source of Tikkun Olam. Right. <laughs> <laughs> They're literally picking and choosing. Right. right. Very interesting. There's so much that I want to ask you um, and discuss with you. I, I, I'm going to leave it for another time, but I, the, the two things that you brought out that I, that I, um, I would encourage, you know, I, I know that you deal with it in the book, um, is, is how indeed it endangers Israel. You know, that I think is a really important point. Maybe somebody will ask that. Um, you know, and, and aside from that, this, this whole concept about the election of Israel, you're making of, of the people of Israel, of the Jewish people, you know, and that, that's very real. On a, you know, on a logical level, if the whole point is to be able to bring the world into social justice, and that's the agency of the Jewish people, you know, once it's brought there, then we've done our job and we're obsolete. Was it the election of Israel or the elections of Israel? No, yeah, right. <laughs> that's a whole other story. Um, but I suppose we should probably open up to questions, you Absolutely. know, um, from the audience. So, so yeah. Well, I mean, I can't speak to what it is that the right is doing, you know, uh, Jonathan will definitely do that better than me. But, uh, you know, in, in Hebrew, in Torah terms, we have a, we have a phrase, zu nevela v'zu terefa. Nevela is an animal that dies on its own that's not kosher, terefa is an animal that's been mauled that's not kosher, right? They're both not kosher. And it doesn't matter whether the right's doing it or the left's doing it. The problem is the fact that it's being done. In other words, it's an adulteration, essentially, of the source of, of, of Jewish thought and texts. And it's not to say that Judaism, or Torah for that matter, doesn't necessarily have something to say about these things. The likelihood is it may very well say things that we don't want to hear from it. Yeah? And, and, uh, and that's the reality. Do we sit before Torah and listen? Or do we look at Torah to see what we can get from it? That's the fundamental question, and I, and, and, um, and I think that that's not just a Jewish question. That's a fundamental question of, of how it is that we learn. You know, uh, do we sit before the world and hear what it is that it's teaching us, or do we look to find what it is that we can get out of it? And those are two fundamental approaches to life. But, um, but if there's anything that the Torah teaches us and the Hachamim teach us, it's sit and listen. Listen. Hear. Gather, you know, it actually, it, there's a beautiful Gemara that says, um, you know, you walk into the Bet Midrash, you walk into the house of study, and likely what you're listening to are contradictory statements right and left. You open the Talmud, and that's what you see. There's, there's people looking on all sides of things. So the Talmud says, so what do you do? What are you supposed to do with such a situation? And the response is, which means make your ear like a funnel. And let all of the information in. And as you grow and learn and develop, sort it. And see how it is that it's supposed to be appropriated. You build your framework while you have all of this data. And then you begin to learn how to be able to appropriate the data. So gather in the information before we make 
knee-jerk judgments and bring to it what is it I want to see in it and listen to it and see what it is that it's telling you rather than what it is that I want to see. And this happens to people very often. I mean, I've been teaching for 20, over 20 years and I can identify very often there'll be people in the class that are waiting to hear, am I saying what they want me to, to say or am I saying things that they don't want me to say rather than saying, you know, what has he got to say? And so that's always the, you know, it's always the, often the case. Yeah. Um, uh, but I'm interested, you're, 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 I mean, how's the right dealing with this kind of thing? Is this, is this only a, a left problem? Or is it just the, the last thing you said just reminded me of a, a friend of mine told me that Maran Ovadi Yosef used to give shiurim on Moshe Shabbat, right? And uh, a friend of mine uh, who was studying and is learning in Israel would, would, would go sometimes when he could. And you'd get, he said, uh, again, I can't verify, I, never, I, I, I didn't go, but he said that... Um, I did. You did yeah. you, exactly, you'll be able to verify. That there were the media would come in at the beginning, at least the one that he'd do, and I don't, I don't know if this was normal, um, would come in and stand at the back just to wait to see what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And you come out, basically it's not, you know, cooking on Shabbat, and then all the media would just leave. <laughs> he's not going to say something controversial, you know, not of anything of interest to our readers. Uh, that's so why he used to wait till the end. So, to your question, um, I think that's, I, I, I certainly think that that is a risk, and um, I take, go to pains in the book to argue or to say uh, that, that just because Judaism isn't synonymous with left-wing politics, that does not mean that it's synonymous with right-wing politics. Um, and, you know, some people who have tried to criticize the book have tried, you know, wanted to make that argument that that's what I think or that's what I suggest, but they obviously can't find anywhere in the book that I say that because I don't say it because I don't believe it. Um, you know, just, just that I think that, that, that there are limits to, what, to, to the precise policy prescriptions that Judaism advocates, um, certainly for the diaspora in, in uh, in, in our times, um, that applies to the left just as it does to um, to the right. Certainly, in terms of uh, Jewish society in, Amer- in America, in particular, I think l- less here, but in, in, in America in particular, um, it is starting to happen. Um, not to the same extent, though, at least not yet, and certainly not to the same extent theologically. I've not seen um, that people are going to the sources with one or two specific issues notwithstanding, but generally they're not going to the sources and saying, um, oh, Torah says X and Y, therefore Donald Trump. Um, they're, not, they're, not quite going, they're not quite going that far. So um, we've not seen that yet, but you are starting to see um, a, uh, um, a more active orthodox and kind of from a um, community getting more involved, um, getting more involved in politics. And you, you just see that in in the, the Jews who populate the White House, mm-hmm. the Donald Trump White, the, you know, the most powerful Jews in the Donald Trump White House or the most senior ranking Jews are Orthodox, Orthodox Jews, um, David Friedman, the ambassador to Israel, Jared, uh, uh, Jason Greenblatt, the, the envoy for international affairs, Jared Kushner, of course, um, Trump's uh, uh, son-in-law, um, uh, you know, Ivanka as well, um, compared to the Jews who populated the Obama White House, you know, really worlds apart. So you are seeing a more active um, uh, community, um, but the one thing that I that I will say that I think is important is that there's a difference between the theological aspects and also Jewish interests, um, which I don't think can be can be skirted over. Um, there, this changes from generation to generation, which side of the aisle, which party, and in different countries it can be different, is better for Jewish interests. 
So looking at the United States, which party is better on anti-Semitism, or which party is better on Israel, or which party is better on religious freedom, for example, which party is better, crucially, on school choice, which is a big issue in America, because they don't have state-funded faith schools in America, which means if you want to give your kid a Jewish education in a school, like here you can send them to JFS or Hasmo, in America you have to spend tens of thousands of dollars to do that, and it's prohibitive. And, um, you know, for for those who believe that you know, there needs to be a very strict separation of, of church and state in America and don't want any federal funding for uh, religious schools or public funding for religious schools, that's potentially a problem. How do you educate the next generation if it's unaffordable to do so? So those are, are the sorts of what people might call parochial interests. But of course, every other grouping has the same, you know, their own parochial interests. Uh, these are the Jewish ones. Um, one may watch to think which party is better on, on those issues. Certainly looking... You know, politics in this country, uh, where we have a very, I think, extreme divergence. Um, I, you know, I, I think it goes without saying, um, you know, where, where, where the choice currently lies. Um, but that's not necessarily a theological argument. Or if it is, it's, it's as it were, one degree separated mm-hmm. from the general view that, you know, Jews need to survive in the diaspora mm-hmm. and therefore it's, mm-hmm. it's a Jewish thing. But it's not in the sense of, of the precise policy. Very important point. Yeah. Last year we attended a attended a, a, an event at a reform synagogue in central London and as you walked in there was a gigantic banner about 30 feet wide that said refugees welcome here. The Balabatim are very very proud of this and they said you know this is a shawl that does tick an alarm and I thought about this a lot and I thought well tick comes from the word takona which means to straighten out. It's not really about perfecting something it's about repairing <coughs> something that's bent. It's like the Greek word ortho which uh, which has a broad meaning and covers orthopedics and orthodontics and orthodoxy and so on. It just means to straighten something out. It's hard to argue that these values are antithetical to, 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 to Jewish thinking. Um, you know, if you ever watch Stiesel, they don't say Boruch Hashem, they say Chaste Hashem, which means, you know, by, by, by the kindness of God. It's hard to argue that these, these values are antithetical to Judaism, but I think, if you don't mind me saying, I think your worry here, and a worry that I share greatly, is that... It's not that American Judaism has moved into the world of tick and alarm. It's that it, it's left behind the traditional um, foundational values of Judaism. They don't teach a masachet, that they don't teach the halacha of Shabbat, that they don't teach kashrut, that they don't teach, um, you know, scripture in the way that, um, that, that, you know, that, that builds up a picture of, of what Jewish values are all about. And, and I think that leaving that behind is the real worry. It's, the worry is not the fact that they devote themselves to a certain extent to values of kindness and, and tick on alarm. It's just that they don't really understand where this is coming from. And I think if, if this was taught alongside some of the foundational things that we teach um, in an orthodox environment over here, uh, you know, uh, traditional learning um, and scripture and halachot and rambam, you wouldn't mind so much. I mean, is that true to say that? And also, why has it not happened over here in the same way? It's happened in certain communities, but why has it not happened in the UK? So I'm worried, I want to know what you're really worried about, and I want to know why it's not happening here. Okay, I'll I'll take your um, uh, second question first, just because it's it's, um, much simpler. Um, American Jewry is the only, certainly the most significant and the largest, but I, I, I believe the only community in the world, certainly in the diaspora and even in the world, where the majority is not orthodox. 80-85% of American Jews are not orthodox. Um, 
and they either go to a non-orthodox shul or the shul they don't go to is a non-orthodox one. Um, whereas in every other community, um, including in Israel in its own way, and particularly here, and, and I understand South Africa as well as similar to this, the, a kind of phenomenon of secular orthodox. The shul I don't go to is a secular one. Um, and in Russia... It's an uh, orthodox one. Sorry, it's an orthodox yeah. one. Yeah, the shul I don't go to is an orthodox one, yeah. Um, and uh, in Russia, Chabad has basically become practically... Yeah. authentic Judaism and it's either you're either very assimilated or you're in Chabad in some form um, so um, that is the fundamental that is the fundamental difference um, the, 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 the the denominational proportions and where people have, have, have grown up so that's that's the main reason and also the movements there are sort of um, the progressive movements are kind of one stage to the left of what they are here so here Msorti is kind of more what there might be kind of conservative docs in America. Conservative in America is more like reform here. Reform in America, which is the largest denomination there, is like liberal here, which is a fringe movement here, but in America is the largest denomination. So there are those differences. In terms of the, the, the question, it's a very interesting one, and, and I, agree, I agree in part and dissent in part, as I will say. The first point is that it isn't Tikkun Olam, or rather Tikkun Olam is not that. Tikkun Olam, as they understand, it has no basis in Judaism. They, they subsume within it all these ideas like chesed, tzedakah, kemilot chasadim, dachei shalom, which are all standalone concepts in the halakha and have integrity of their own and deserve to be studied and should be studied and, and actually in the orthodox community arguably are understudied. But Tikkun Olam is not one of those things. It is not an umbrella of those things. And a lot of people say, well, does it really matter? You know, it's a nice thing. They're doing nice things. Again, it's political, not the charity. So I would argue they're not necessarily doing nice things. It really just depends on what your politics are. But on the charitable side, you can't just allow... One can't just, I think, consent to or acquiesce to the ignorance that underlies this. We have concepts in Judaism. Learn them mm -hmm. and apply those. Yeah. Don't just think that, oh, it's a nice thing, so we can just call it whatever we want. Right. Um, you know, that isn't really the way, the, the way that we do things. Helping an old lady across the street is not Shabbat. Mm -hmm. It may be a nice thing, but it doesn't mean that that is Shabbat. The, the, these concepts have integrity of, of their own. Um, the next one, I think, is that, you know, there is in Judaism a hierarchy of importance. This is, this is very well known. But the point is that you know, we are bound not only as, as a Jewish people to God in covenant, but because of that, also bound to one another, Jew to Jew. And that is the kind of primary um, moral, if you will, uh, relationship for, um, for the Jew. That is the priority. And it's not overly controversial. I liken it on the one hand to a family. After all, we're all the progeny of Avram. We all are one family. And it would be strange if you treated your children or grandchildren or parents or siblings in the way that you would treat a complete stranger. People would find that very weird. You know, to give the same emotional support or financial support to a stranger as you do to your own child uh, or your own sibling, that would be very strange. It wouldn't only be strange, it would be prohibited. Right. So it's only Jewishly. It's, but it's, like even, it's against even the in, law. Right. <laughs> but even in normal parlance, or, or in, kind of in, in a sort of neutral observer, they would find that strange, because it's only natural that you care about those who are closest to you first. 
Now, that's very different from saying that you don't care about other people. We, we absolutely, not only are obligated in Judaism to care about, uh, 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 about strangers and others, but also just, again, the neutral observer would still expect you to behave well towards a stranger. That doesn't have to detract from your relationship with your own family, but of course, that is still a more intense relationship. We also see it in nations. You know, we, we, you know, let us say for a moment that people are supportive of the idea of the NHS. We like the idea of healthcare that is free at the point of purchase, or free at the point of delivery. Um, but most people would be uncomfortable with the idea that that should be available to everyone in the world. Part of the idea is it should be available to our fellow citizens because we are in a closer form of relationship to them. We are bound by the same laws. We can accept the same, we, we, we expect the same reciprocity from them. We would not... We pay for it. We pay for it. Also, we pay for it and they pay for it and so on. That's part of it. But I think part of it is fundamentally also that for those who believe in it, believe that, yeah, we have an obligation to our fellow citizens and that goes beyond the obligation that we have to somebody on the other side of the world. And a lot of people get annoyed about NHS tourism, for example, that people come here from the other side of the world and want to use those services, in part because they haven't paid for it and in part because you just basically say that I'm doing this for my fellow citizens. We're in a society together. You are not in that society. Again, they believe in international aid and so on. It's not to say we don't care about other people, but there is a different level of relationship. So that's important in terms of thinking about these on a case-by-case basis, where the priority is and whether we think enough attention is being given to Jewish issues, uh, also to uh, needy Jews, potentially to Israel. Some may even say to, to the needy in this country that sometimes people, it's, uh, it can look very good, you know, sort of virtue signaling and all of that. Again, it doesn't apply to in all cases, but it certainly applies in some, that people are very keen to show that I'm helping complete strangers, I'm helping refugees, but actually what about that person who's been sleeping on the street around the corner from your synagogue for the last five years? You know, what about them? And so on. But again, I don't want to, you know, Towards it, throw throw stones in glass houses and so you know I don't want to criticise where you know I, I I'm just as, as vulnerable as everybody else. Um, I totally agree with you on Tikkun replacing Judaism. This is not a case of adding. This is a case a question of replacing. So I won't I won't develop that. But finally, I'll say this that I think in our in when we when we do these sorts of um, these sorts of projects here or abroad, for me it's very important that people understand how we are relating to other people. I think theologically in Judaism, I'd be interested if, 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 if um, uh, the rabbi uh, takes a different view, that this is a question of Jew relating to non-Jew and not human being relating to human being. This comes to the universalism point. That, and the Tikkun Olam movement tries desperately to argue that the source of moral obligation in Judaism is creation and not revelation. Mm. This is absolutely uh, imperative and pivotal to their theology. And the reason is that they want to break down those barriers between Jews and non-Jews because they don't like this idea that Jews have a greater obligation to fellow Jews. They want everyone, we're all human beings. They're embarrassed of it. Well, certainly in terms of the motivation. Um, but they want, they, they want all relations to be between a, a human being and a fellow human being. And that, I think, is problematic from a Jewish point of view. In practice, it may look, end up looking the same way. But in terms of how one uh, approaches it, it needs to be, a, I'm a Jew and I feel obligated to do these good works to, uh, to, a, non, to a non-Jew um, who is created in God's image and so on. But not simply, oh, I'm a human being 
that's a human being and I've, I have a, an equal relationship to them. I think that is it. Again, it may look the same in practice, but I think the, the underlying theology, I think, is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to just mention one thing about that because um, it, cannot be, it cannot be overstated how particularized Judaism is with these kinds of things, even among Jews themselves. Um, you know, tzedakah itself, there are very strict laws. Nobody really l- studies the laws, and if they do, they're not customarily enacted and practiced appropriately. You know, it, people will think about giving charity, and they just think, well, what should I give to? What, is, what, what, what touches my heart? What do I think is a good cause? And really, the first question should be is, is my family okay? And does everybody in my family have what it is that they need, and can I help them? And until that question is answered, no charity should be given elsewhere. I mean, that, that, that's, that's just one minor example of, of how it is that the Torah looks at these things, besides the fact that kindness itself is highly dangerous in the eyes of the Torah. Kindness, tread carefully, because the, the Torah is much more concerned with killing people with kindness than performing kindness. Because every time that you give someone something, you take something from them. You're taking from them something that they do not have and cannot stand on their own two feet because something is being propped under them to help them. So to what degree is this allowed to be done? When you do help someone across the street, when you do give someone something, are you allowed to do that? Not is it commendable to do that? Are you allowed to do that? Have you taken into account what it is that you're taking from them? And that, by the way, is what the term gimilut chasadim means. Why don't we talk about doing chesed. We have this strange phrase in, in, in Torah, gmilut. Gamal in Hebrew is a camel. It's camel chesed. Right? Why do we call it camel chesed? And for that matter, why is a camel called a camel? The word gamal literally means to wean. And the camel is called a camel because it is the greatest weaned animal that we know. This is an animal that carries its water on its back, can traverse the desert for days on end without needing anything. Well, that's a weaned animal. That's a weaned entity. That's a gamal. And so what that means is, is that kindness, gimilut chasadim, literally means that kindness needs to be done only in terms of weaning someone from needing it. And if that's not done, if you create a state in which the welfare is constant and it is something that perpetuates it from happening, it's antithetical to Torah. Right, but that's a study that needs to be done, has to be understood, and we have to really, I mean, you talk about studying Abraham's life, you have to study Abraham with tremendous scrutiny to realize that he went through an entire life and where basically, I mean, the one lesson that emerges from Abraham's entire life is that he had to stop being so nice. Really, it's what ends up happening to him. I mean, the major challenges of Abraham's life was that he had to be much more reserved in terms of the kindnesses that he wanted to give than to be able to do them. It's to send his own son away from the house. You know? And God's saying, yeah, absolutely, send him away. That, that's just glossed over, right? You know, that part of the story. We, and, and the reason I say there's embarrassment is because I genuinely believe that you know, there, are, there is a, a large constituency among the Jewish people that are embarrassed of the Torah. And that, that has to be stated. We're embarrassed. You know, we read things in, in, in Torah, in public, and, and, and we kind of cringe that it's actually in there. Rather than saying, well, what does that mean, and how does that inform my Judaism, and do I just strike it because it's something that I don't like to hear? No. Judy. Right. Judy, sorry. <laughs> I was in the wrong job. After Judy, after Judy. 
say one thing on that quick it's interesting how you how you present it because you're saying Jews want to be seen as being right how did it become political it's an interesting question right what's the motivation of course we as members of the world community of the global community should lend our hands to the disasters that occur in the world as we can if we do not have other things that we need to take care of in terms of the value system and priorities but there, I think that whether you meant that or not, or whether you said it intentionally, I, you know, I, yeah, I imagine you said it intentionally. It's an interesting point. We want to be seen as helping. And that, that makes me wonder, you know, how when that's in the water, yeah, and that there's, even if it's part of the motivation, you know, what, what place does that take? It should, be, it should be that we're doing it because it needs to be done. And if we're talking about tikkun olam in, in, its, in its concrete sense, that we need to fix the world, we need to fix the world. But to, for, if we're concerned about anti-Semitism or our public relations or our, you know, our, our marketing, you know, in terms of the great Jewish way, and that's why we're doing it, that automatically becomes political. Yeah, and it's, it's hard to avoid. Um, I'll, try to, I'll try to be briefer because so we can get to... We can, so we can get to more questions. Um, just on, 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 the, on the embarrassment point, and then I'm going to come to the, um, to the question. I mentioned that in, in, a, you know, in a repaired world, there's no, there's no need for Jews. The purpose of the Jews in the world, and, and on this reading, is to advocate for social justice. And once you have a, a world of social justice, you, don't, you have no need for Jews. And what's fascinating is that this kind of self-abnegation, this belief in, in, in destroying the Jewish people or, or ending the Jewish people, um, is... is um, a theme that is applied only to the Jews and not to any other minority group, right? The notion of going to, you know, whether it's African-Americans, American Muslims, uh, any other religious or ethnic grouping and saying, basically, the whole purpose of you being here is essentially to assimilate, is essentially to be like everybody else and so on, rather than celebrating their minority status and their culture and so on. Um, that's an incredible distinction that, that these Jews seem to make, that it's only... Us. It's only us who have to disappear, um, but everyone else we know we need to celebrate them, go out of our way to celebrate them. It's, it's, it's kind of pathological. Mm. It's, it's extraordinary. Um, in, terms, in terms of the Jews helping, um, the first thing I'll say is that, in my view, in, in the grand scheme of where Jewish theology is, um, or, or what Jewish, Jewish theology um, uh, uh, claims um, or teaches, is that Ultimately, the Jews should be living in the land of Israel. The Jews should be sovereign in the land of Israel. Now, that's different from saying that every Jew now has an obligation to make Aliyah. That's a different question. But overall, being in exile, being outside of the land of Israel is a bad thing. It is an adverse condition. It is not something that we wanted and is not something that Judaism particularly likes. 
the, 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 way, I, the way I put it, the, particularly to American audiences, that the Torah is like a, uh, a constitution for one people living in its land under God. Right? That, is what the, that, that is what the Torah is essentially there, and only because of our misdeeds and providence, history, and so on, we were thrown out of the land of Israel, the temple was destroyed, and we can no longer do that. Now, thank God, because of the establishment of the state, that opportunity to some degree arises, and, you know, please God, that will lead um, in, you know, more in that direction. So, leaving aside us as individuals and whether we should be in Israel or not, ultimately, the Jews should be in the land of Israel, um, fulfilling the covenant. That is the, that is the purpose of why the Jews in the world, Jews are in the world. That brings blessing to the world. That is our purpose here. Um, so, when it comes to these things, ultimately, what I really love is when missions go from Israel to these places. When missions go from Israel to Haiti or Tibet or wherever, because that's that's when you're saying Kimitzion. You know, Tate Torah, from out of Zion goes forth this sort of activity, this sort of thing. That to me is beautiful. That, that I, I kind of see that and say that is what Judaism is, 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 is about. Um, but we're not there, obviously. So how do we deal then with, with, with where we're at? Um, you know, as, as, as the rabbi says, I think for each individual in terms of where they, where they put their contributions of, of not only money, but also time and their energies, um, whether they think that these, um, these places are getting support from elsewhere in a way that the Jews are perhaps not, that will be for each of them to decide. I don't think that these, are, I absolutely don't think that these are bad things to be doing. Um, it's just a question of finding the right balance. Um, and I won't pick up on the discussion about um, in order to be seen, but what I will say is that if you're doing it, make sure you are seen doing it. And make sure you are seen doing it as Jews, because I think it brings glory to God uh, and to the Jewish people um, to be seen doing that. So if you are going to do it, then do it as, as Jews. Don't, don't hide. Don't hide. And again, it goes back to this. You're not doing it as human beings to fellow human beings. You're doing it as Jews to, to non-Jews. Be seen to be doing that. Yes, sir. I want to just question this Tikkun Olam. The principles and the fundamentals involved in the, the items you mentioned, uh, charitable work, social justice, and others and others. Surely this is not only Judaism who believe in this or practice it. Other faiths, or other faiths also practice it. So it's an international concept, philosophical concept, nothing new about it. What do you think of this? No, I think very briefly, I think you're absolutely right. And how could it be that, that the purpose of the Jews in the world is to do things that everybody else should be doing and can do and should, you know, and, and, and should do? It can't be that what marks out the Jews compared to everybody else is exactly the same thing that all of them are doing or should be doing. Um, so I, I completely agree with that. I think it's a, it's a universal thing. Um, certainly charity and staka and so on broadly, um, you know, broadly thought are... Um, are also, you know, universals. That other religions also have these imperatives in their own in their own ways. I certainly don't believe in reducing all the religions to that to the sort of the golden rule and just actually what all these religions teach at the end of the day is just to be nice to other people. You don't really have to do anything else, and we're not really so different. We are very different. We are very very different. Um, but there are some things that, that look very similar, and some things that are that are the same or are are similar, um, and those can still be very good things. But that's not the totality, and it certainly can't be the only thing that you know marks us out. I love that point, that what it can't be what makes the Jews different is what everybody else should be doing. <laughs> I love that point. Yeah. Then after, maybe after this we'll also yeah. talk about Israel, unless the question is about yeah. Israel. Just Sorry. Sure. Question Your question better be about Israel. About Israel. <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, yeah. 
I think that at the heart of a lot of um, where the feelings come on this matter is from the idea of chosenness and the difficulty of being in diaspora and feeling comfortable with having been elected to be an entity that at times has, has been very disparaged. But I think that the difficult point now is obviously some of the luster for this um, Tikkun movement, for the positivity of it, should we say, has fed into a certain individualist personal idea that you can really grow through through the calling that you've been given through um, generally progressive rabbis, but not always. So I suppose my question is, has modern Judaism, in the orthodox sense, got something to say to people's struggle for Jewishness, to be understood and to self-understand within the society that they live in? What can it say to us that makes us put uh, traditional Jewish teachings um, a little bit more side by side with how we might feel about all the the different forces pulling us in different directions. So what is the solution to get us to combine Judaism with our, with our desire for some sort of a, a wider identity? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a very important question. I think that you know, I, people should not underestimate the value of that question because it's a real problem in orthodox circles. I'm going to answer briefly, again, in principle. Um, I just gave a talk this morning about uh, um, the golden age of Spain, the Jewish, you know, the Jewish golden age of Spain, and one of the things that I, you know, that I put forward was this question that you're asking was never a question. The reason for that was because the way that I put it is in one single line, and that is that the author of the Torah is the author of the world, and there should be no contradictions. And that's not often taught in, in orthodox circles. And that's what needs to be taught. In other words, once we realize that the world itself is not an elaborate distraction, but an elaborate <coughs> expression of God, meaning a distraction in the sense that you're being distracted and can you manage to keep your focus on the stuff you're supposed to keep your focus on, right? Which is very much a way that things are taught in many orthodox circles. But rather, this is an elaborate ex expression of God, and to know him is to know it. And to serve him is to serve it. And so it's really not contradictory. And I think that that lesson needs to be um, stronger. The volume has to be raised on, in, in that lesson. But it's not one that we have to run very far to find. Yeah. Um, Israel. Um, yeah. So, right. So when he's formed... Formulate this in terms of a, in terms of some kind of question. Well, I'll, my question so, simply is: it's very simple, and uh, and we're running close to end, so we'll, we'll be conscious of that. My question is: Are they really endangering Israel? I mean, does this concept of the left and how they're embracing Tikkun Olam are putting it forward, and is the left in general? I mean, it's a very bold title to the book. Are they really endangering Israel, and if so, how? Um, so the. The roots of the hostility toward Israel on, on the hard left um, in, American, in American Jewry, um, and it's related also to, to the hard left here in, in, in its own way, um, is actually originally nothing to do with Judaism. Um, it really goes back to um, the 1960s um, and the Cold War. And for 
a number of the, the kind of Jewish radicals that we mentioned earlier, people like Arthur Waskow, um, who um, ran a think tank that was basically a, uh, a propagandist or at least apologist for the Soviet Union. It was very um, pro kind of militant civil rights, very anti-Vietnam and so on. People like Michael Lerner, who went on to found Tikkun Magazine, but at the time was a member of the Seattle Seven and so on. Um, the, for these people, Israel was fundamentally on the wrong side of the Cold War. Cold War, of course, the United States and, and the West and kind of the, the democratic West and so on against the, the Soviet Union and its satellite states and allies. Um, and the hard left in America, as here, and, and you know, people, some people in this room will, will, will remember it firsthand, um, were, you know, took essentially um, either at best a very critical view of the West um, and in some cases went further and, and were... Um, uh, sympathetic, at the very least, to the other side, to the Soviet Union. And Israel was on the wrong side of that equation. Israel was allied with the United States and, uh, and against the Soviet Union, where the Soviet Union was allied with the Arab powers and in particular the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, which you know, at the time in, in the late 60s and then into the 1970s was engaging in, in um, pioneering and unrepentant terrorism um, uh, hijacking aeroplanes, um, bringing you know European airports to a standstill, and so on, um, and that's the source of this hostility. It was political. So Tikkun Olam and the theological issues are not the cause. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting is that then these radicals came together in organizations like Brera in the 1970s, which means alternative. It was a play on the Israeli adage at the time, en Brera, there is no alternative, uh, i.e. there was no alternative but to prevail, that we don't want to be in this existential war with the Arabs, but that this is what they were inflicting upon us. Um, an organization like Brera, another organization in the 80s called New Jewish Agenda, again, similar people and so on. These, the individuals in these organizations turned to Judaism as ways of uh, expressing um, their, uh, their politics and that hostility. And it wasn't just on Israel, New Jewish Agenda, again, did, did the whole gamut of, of issues, the environment, nuclear weapons, uh, race relations, and so on. Um, but the Judaism that they encountered was one of social justice already. They were the ones who popularized Tikkun Olam, but social justice was already very present in Judaism. So that was... Uh, this kind of religious terminology and conceptualization for political views that they already had, including this hostility toward Israel. What you get that's interesting with, uh, with this is not only um, the kind of feedback that, that once you've got that theological justification, then people start thinking that they're doing Judaism um, by being hostile, but this rise of a kind of diasporist Judaism, mm -hmm. that this um, hostility and embarrassment about Israel and its, uh, the, the policies of its government. And this is not just, you know, in the last 10 years under this prime minister. This goes, you know, goes well back. I mean, the 1960s, this is before, and the 70s, this is still Labour governments we're talking about in Israel. This is before Begin, before the Lebanon war. At that point, they got more people into their, into their camp because, you know, that was, that was a big issue for American uh, Jewry. But this is well before that. Um, so... What you have now is this rise of a kind of diasporous Judaism that I alluded to before, that because of this embarrassment that actually um, Jews don't do well with power. And actually we're no better than everyone else, maybe we're worse than everybody else. And really what Judaism is about is being in exile. And that there are moral lessons that we learn from being in exile, and that in fact when you go 
really deep into, into you know, what people like Judith Butler, um, a, 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 a literary academic in, in Berkeley, very, very hard left, uh, are saying that, that Jews need to learn from uh, the, the kind of the, the modes of being in exile the, the, and the modes of morality of exile need to then become part of Judaism. In other words, that Judaism needs to absorb non-Judaism that we learn non-Judaism from being in exile, and that that now becomes part of the essence of Judaism. We have to learn non-Judaism um, uh, in exile and make that a part of our Judaism, which is, in my view, you know, prima facie ridiculous. But the point is that they, they basically see that being in exile is not an adverse condition. It's a good thing and something that we should welcome and that we, you know, we can do social justice um, only really when we're in exile, outside of Israel. And actually going to Israel is not such a good thing because it's harder to do social justice there. And this is not even just the extremists. This is now um, moving closer. To give you an example, Shmuel, um, Shmuel Yanklowitz, who we mentioned earlier, the open orthodox social justice rabbi. It's very difficult for an orthodox rabbi to try to um, eliminate Israel from the picture. So with him, it's interesting because you see the tension. He basically says, on the one hand, Israel is a very good thing and we need to kind of support Israel and move to Israel. But not everyone should move to Israel, mm -hmm. because actually some people need to stay in the diaspora to do the social justice work. And he's the one with, you know, trying to grapple with it the most because he's on the orthodox side. When you go further to the left, there's no need for Israel in that. We're happy to stay in the diaspora, do the social justice work in the diaspora. And you get to the point where there's no, there's no need really for a Jewish homeland. Because That's very interesting because what that, I'm sorry to interrupt no. you, but I'm, I mean, something's dawning on me based on how it is that you're explaining it, you know, because... Although I don't believe that Israel is simply a haven from another Holocaust, although it's very often presented that way, essentially what they're saying is the thing that saves us from another Holocaust is to be really up on our social justice game. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, unless I'm misunderstanding, that's basically what, what, what the idea is. In other words, they're saying as long as we are at the top of, of leading and championing social justice, we hold our place in this world. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, but then you can lose your identity. Oh, it, right, completely. Right. That's exactly Which is, where it is. You know, it's just one of the casualties. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, bring it to a close here because uh, we have a social contract. <laughs> uh, and that's part of, I suppose, social justice. I really want to thank you so much for spending time and for sharing such erudite and well-thought ideas for us that we really do need to listen to and take, take account of. Definitely t uh, buy the book before you leave. And um, and uh, I look forward to another to another soon. Thank you very much. That's the time. Very good. Thank you.